Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, our series on the 1948 films nominated for Best Picture at the 21st Academy Awards held in 1949. That's right, Josh. I'm changing it up a little bit to make it clearer for the listeners. 1948 movies, 1949 <sighs> ceremony. You just couldn't help it, could you? <laughs> and we're actually kicking things off with this year's Best Picture winner. It's the first cinematic, major cinematic adaptation of William Shakespeare's Hamlet, an expressionistic, noirish production from director, writer, producer, and star Lawrence Olivier. Kenneth Branagh. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. It's, wrong one. It's easy to it's easy to confuse the two. Uh, and we'll get to that, uh, no doubt, in our conversation. Branagh often confuses the two himself. Yes, he does. <laughs> Academy Award winner Kenneth Branagh, by the way, after this past year. That's right. Yeah. It took it took him quite a bit longer than it took Olivier. Um, Olivier, of course, widely considered one of the top two or three preeminent Shakespeare interpreters of the, the 20th century. And this is kind of his most celebrated uh, adaptation, his most celebrated film um, after all, as I mentioned, it won Best Picture. So we're going to get into to the whole Academy Awards of it all with this film a bit later. Um, as usual, though, we have to begin with the question, have we seen this before? Josh, I'll throw it to you. Have you seen this before? Uh, not this version of Hamlet. I've seen aforementioned Brana's version uh, in English class, or at least most of it. Um, I had not seen this. I don't think I'd actually seen Lawrence Olivier in anything before this for this weekend and watching this movie. TJ, had you seen this? Yes, I had. I picked up the Criterion DVD uh, a few years ago and watched it as like an alternative to, because I teach Hamlet, I've taught it six or seven times. God, that's, I'm old. Uh, and I usually show the Brano one and I show clips from the Royal Shakespeare Company one with David Tennant. So I was like, oh, let's watch this Lawrence Libier one that won... Did it win the Palme d'Or also? Am I making that up? It won the it won the Golden Lion at Venice. Okay, there we go. And won Best Picture, and I was just like, oh, let's watch this one, and I can sub some of these clips in. Uh, quick spoiler, I don't use this version in my class. <laughs> uh, I I'm not I'm not entirely surprised. Uh, I'd never actually watched this film from beginning to end all the way through. Uh, I'd seen clips from this movie, but I'd also seen the Brana one. And uh, I've actually seen a recording of the Tenet version you just referred to. Um, yeah, it's uh, Lawrence Olivier. Let's just say he he always seems to be on, very on. I'm going to argue in a lot of places he's actually not on enough in this. More oh, really? on that later. But he's he's not on enough. Oh, this isn't like Rich. This isn't like his Richard. Um, where he's really on, um, and it's not like Othello, where he, spoiler alert, decided to go blackface as, as controversial as oh. that was like Orson choice. Even in like the Orson 60s, Welles, right? Even in the 1960s, yeah. it was controversial. But wait, Orson Welles did blackface? Oh yes, he did. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but the thing is, like Hamlet, people suggest that the idea of hamming it up, like that, that phrase comes from the fact that like the hamlet role is so insane and kind of inconsistent and in in a good way that it allowed for these really extreme interpretations and it it's almost like you can't overact that role and uh i don't feel like larry's really trying even i I, the problem though i feel is this is Lawrence olivier he's never off 
I'm not sure when, like, you could, I, I would argue that the only film I can think of off the top of my head where he plays it very subtly is a film from the late 70s uh, called A Bridge Too Far. He plays a doctor in that film, and he plays it very subtly, and he's actually quite endearing in the movie. Uh, but beyond that, he's almost always, he's like Brana. He's like Brana in Harry Potter, or Brana in Hamlet, or Brana in Henry V. He's, he's always a one. Is it um, safe? Brana and Much Ado. Right, yeah. Um, Is it safe? Yeah. <laughs> Marathon so, Man. What? Oh, well, Marathon, Marathon Man. Marathon Man, yes. Okay. Well, we're talking about Olivier. Um, probably, is that maybe the film most people would recognize him from? Possibly. I, yeah. Dustin Hoffman, what, 1979? It's a thriller. Yeah. Put put him put him in a context for me who's who's never seen him in anything besides this. Like Ken, what's what's your relationship to Olivier and like what what should I know about Olivier? I know that he's a Shakespeare guy and that he's these you know died before I was born. That's all I really know. Right. Well, he was first and foremost uh, known in England as a stage thespian. He was he was a larger than life stage presence. Uh, he was very very important to the Old Vic Company. Uh, he. I'm not sure if I'd have to look this up. I not I don't believe he founded the old Vic. Um, we'd have to look that up and and confirm later. But he certainly was co he was the director of the old Vic for a long time. Um, and during this period of time, when Hamlet comes out, he's married to uh, Vivian Lee of Gone with the Wind fame and a Streetcar Named Desire, and they were uh, a power couple in Britain, um, even in America. They were very well known. And if anything, that that notoriety probably helped him uh, with getting Henry V and Hamlet produced and distributed as widely as they were. Um, and then later on in life, while he still did a lot of stage work, uh, he still continued to adapt uh, Shakespeare. He started branching out and doing non-Shakespearean uh, films. For example, uh, if you've ever seen, uh, as we just mentioned, Marathon Man, uh, he's also in Spartacus, He's in The Boys from Brazil with Gregory Peck. Uh, he's in Sleuth, which is actually an underrated little um, little kind of cat and mouse kind of movie with him and Michael Caine, and they're fantastic in it together. Michael Caine. But he is, he, Olivier, as usual, is very on in that movie. Um, and and a, a Bridge Too Far, as I mentioned earlier. Um, it's one of those things that you kind of have to actively seek him out. I'm not sure that there's a ton of films that get a whole lot of playtime today that people would instantly recognize him from. It's more of his name. Uh, he was... Yeah. He was just well-known... He's synonymous. Yeah. Yeah. He was well-known for his Shakespeare work, and just... That's kind of... It's it's an afterthought. Everyone knew him as Larry Olivier, and they still reference him today. If you watch interviews with people like Maggie Smith and Judy Dench, um, he was... His 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 last wife... His, his last wife was uh, Joan, Dame Joan Plowright. Um, she's still alive, uh, most people, our generation would know her as Martha from the Dennis the Menace movie from the early 90s. She's also in uh, Tea with Mussolini, um, Bringing Down the House with Steve Martin. <laughs> She's a delightful old lady. But the isn't point- there even though like there's isn't there like British Tonys called the Olivier Awards? Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Okay. It, it used to be called the society of west end theater awards but they renamed it <laughs> that in one 1984. rolls off the tongue <laughs> yeah the sweta awards, society of <laughs> <West> <laughs> awards. 
no, they are. In, they are, in fact, yes, the uh, Olivier's. And we'll, I can bring this up now while we're talking about Olivier. He was actually knighted the same year Hamlet came out, and was the first actor, the first film actor to ever be so uh, honored by the the monarch. Um, and later on in life, Queen Elizabeth actually made him a member of the House of Lords for all of his uh, work in British theater and and film so yeah he was very very well respected national treasure yes exactly a little background about the film like while we're while we're talking about olivier it it is a little weird to think that this film was nominated for best picture because we don't it's not often that we hear about shakespeare adaptations i feel like being widely received by audiences and yet this it generated 3.2 million dollars at the box office in North America alone, which adjusted is something like $40 million today. To your point, last year there was a Shakespeare adaptation directed by Joel Cohen starring Denzel and Francis, and it went directly to a streamer. Correct. Yes. And that had huge, that admittedly it did have, you got Washington and you've got Francis McDormand. I mean, Hamlet was, was all the heavy lifting was Olivier. It was basically, you're trying to get audiences to show up to watch Olivier be Hamlet. Very similar visual aesthetic between those two movies, too. I wonder if Joel Cohen and Bruno Delbanel, who shot that movie, watched this, especially the opening and the ending scene. Anytime the ghost appears in this movie, I'm like, oh, shit, it looks like Joel Cohen's Hamlet. Uh, yeah, the choice, he decides to go black and white with this film, which in 1948 he didn't have to. Um, and in fact, uh, I... Off the top of my head, I haven't seen all of his cinematic adaptations of Shakespeare, but I think all of the others are color. Um, This is the only one he went black and white, and the cinematographer chose to use deep focus. And yes, similar to Cohen's tragedy, the emphasis of shadows and even the fog, or the, 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 you know, fabricated or made up fog for some of these scenes creating this kind of aura, and also the minimalism of the set and the set design yeah, yeah 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 set design just bare walls and staircases and lots sky. and lots of smoke yes and lots of smoke yes yes like, which i think works a lot better in macbeth not not just the film but for the source material than than hamlet sure he's he's leaning heavily into the uh, in contrast with brana this is medieval set and it looks it it's just a stone castle and everything is very bare. You've got some wooden chairs, and you've got stone steps, stone walls, and some bits of nature. Otherwise, all of these people are, are running around, you know, just seemingly counting the days before they get the plague, basically, is how <laughs> it appears watching these people. Um, it's interesting to note, this is actually the ninth cinematic adaptation. I mentioned earlier, it's the first major cinematic uh, version. There were something like, there were at least eight known silent adaptations which i'm not sure what i think about someone trying to do a silent adaptation of a shakespeare play <laughs> let's of... take the best thing about shakespeare and cut it out the words yeah um, it's of note i could not for the life of me find access to any of these so they've been lost to history or no one has decided to share them um there but they existed at one time um he was so determined to adapt Shakespeare and bring it to the masses. This is a four-plus-hour play. There's no way that audiences were going to show up for that. Um, no one told Kenneth Branagh that years later. But Livier at least understood that much. And so I guess let's jump into talking about the film, starting off with the fact this movie comes in at about two hours, 35 minutes. 
um, significantly cut down from the running time of the play. Not even, not cut down enough for Universal, who was the U.S. distributor at the time, who wanted it down to like two hours. But still, it's two and a half hours. That is a quick Hamlet. Uh, so what do we think? Does this adaptation even work, given what he's cutting out? The pacing's weird. Um, this time I paid attention to, you know, not that, because even in the play, not every act is exactly the same length, but I'm going, okay, two and a half hours, about a half an hour in act, right? Uh, the end of act one of the, of the play, not speaking in terms of film structure, is at 50 minutes. So act Jeez, really? Yeah. So, you know, when he's um talking about I'm oh, I'm going to act crazy, like just around to see like if I just saw my ghost dad, uh hey friends, don't tell anybody. That's that's 50 minutes in, 50. And so the last like Ophelia going crazy through the end is truncated to like almost 20 minutes I was pretty say, much. Yeah, it's within it was it was after the 2 hour mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think pacing, pacing wise, it has a problem. And I don't wanna I don't wanna come out and just say like every way in which it's different from the original text is a flaw, because I think that's kind of a stupid theory of, ad- of adaptation. But I think in as a film, that's almost your inciting incident, is when he actually sees his ghost dad, and we're a third of the way through the movie. Ghost dad, of course, here played by uh... Bill Cosby. <laughs> Good, good pull. Uh, I mean, I have him, like, seeing his ghost I got poisoned when I was sleeping in my garden. <laughs> That's a really bad Bill Cosby. <laughs> Not as bad as the original. Um, <laughs> I have him seeing his ghost dad and, like, deciding, keep this a secret, Bernardo, Marcel- Marcellus, and Horatio, around the half hour, 35-minute mark or so. And there could be 15 more minutes before when he decides to get crazy, but, like, that's what I have as the end of Act 1, not from a Shakespeare perspective, but from a functional screenplay perspective, that's about the end of Act 1 for me. Does that sound right? About 35 minutes in? I thought I checked and it was 50 when Act 1 I mean, was over. I'm watching but... now, and mm-hmm. he's about to see his ghost dad, and there's 2 hours and 7 minutes left, and this is 2 hours and 33 minutes long. So we're still not quite half an hour in yet, and he's about to see his dad. Mm-hmm. That is a long scene, though, when he sees his dad. Correct. Yeah, we Just in the play, at least. Well, almost every scene, almost every scene is cut down from, which is, I, I get it. We don't want to go in too, too far into the play itself. Um, some of the choices I think work given that he's not doing a religiously committed uh, adaptation of the play. He leaves, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie and love the play. There's no Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Uh, there's no Fortinbras. Um, and I don't think that the movie's hurt by their absence. I don't know. I kind of do. And I, it's hard for me to divorce my complaints about this movie from my like in- English teacherness of the play, but also fondness for Brana's film. And in losing Fortinbras and losing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, you're losing two of the main themes of the play, having to deal with uh, the surveillance state and having to deal with the, like, foils of succession that are there uh you know with with laertes and then thus fortinbra and so the whole issue of succession which is the crisis of of the play at the beginning is um like totally left out of 
this adaptation. This, um, no, but the, he's he's aiming for the Game of Thrones crowd with this movie. It is, <laughs> it is incest, baby. That is what is going to draw the people <laughs> to the movies. Wait, how do you mean? Well, it's it's focused primarily. This film is so much more focused on the mental state of Hamlet as opposed to the state of the state and Hamlet and the two kind of juxtaposing. The focus is much more on his state of mind following his father's murder and him learning that A, he was murdered and B, it was his uncle who is now sitting on the throne who also in the process married very rapidly, like two months after his father's dead. Uh, His mother, the widowed queen, is now married to her ex-brother-in-law. And there's, of course, the dialogue from the play, Shakespeare's referring to incest because it's brother marrying brother marrying sister-in-law, um, not literal incest. But there is also much more of an emphasis on this kind of Freudian or, or Oedipal complex going on with Hamlet because he and Gertrude have some really, you know, more romantic uh, interactions or kisses, let's say, in this film that are kind of unnecessary, but this is where Olivier's taken this. I think it's in the text, though, because I remember from Brana's... Okay, disclosure, I, I read Hamlet in high school when we were juniors, and I have not touched it since, and I watched a good bunch of, if not all, of Brana's version back then. I remember the... Uh, who plays Gertrude? Julie Christie. Version? Julie Christie? Yep. There were some weird scenes between Kenneth Branagh and his mom, Julie Christie, and the Branagh version, too. And I think that's in the, that's in the text, isn't it? She's it's, kind of a hussy, is my point. She's well, kind of a hussy. It's at least a very uh, common threaded interpretation based on Hamlet constantly calling, you know, from, from the beginning of Act 1, Scene 2, where he talks about their, their soiled, incestuous sheets uh you know frailty thy name is woman like he's really big on my mom as a whore the whole time and thus um a lot of people read in like why are you why are you so fascinated with what's going on in your mom's bed um because but I think, treachery I think, in his mom's bed that's yeah why. and, and even, injustice even the ghost comes back and he's like be nice to your mom don't worry about her whoring it up in my old bed you know um which is pretty great uh-huh. Uh, w- w- hold on, real quick, just because you mentioned it, we can talk about it later. The ghost looks awesome in this, and is scary. The ghost as looks fun. so. I was gonna say he's cool. intimidating yeah. actually in this movie. Um, one of the one of the highlights, one of the highlights in the movie is the ghost. In the Brana Hamlet, he kind of looks like a reanimated, like possessed Santa Claus. In this one, he's, <laughs> he he's he is scary as shit. In this one, he looks yeah, like he, yeah. he looks like he is auditioning for one of the like one of the the ring holders in Lord of the Rings. Like he looks like yeah. a, a demented, very <laughs> ring wraith action going on there. Yes, uh-huh. ring, ring wraith. Thank, That's you. Thank you. There's yeah. the t- I, I'm I'm showing off my my non uh, non Lord of the Rings nerd credentials. Real quick, TJ. A brief literature corner question for TJ's literature corner. How old is Hamlet supposed to be in the play? Uh, <laughs> awkward, awkward question. Hamlet's thirty, and he's thirty in the play. He, he's thirty. Yeah. So this okay. is this is kind of surprising because when you read him, he is very much an angsty kind of goth teenager. Yeah, he's that, a little twerp. That's the way he plays, and thus he is. You know, that plays read a lot in high school as like, look, he's. 17 and you can relate to this sort of thing he, he's way at school but the school is wiltonburg so it's kind of like theological graduate school but the place where we get this is when he's talking to the grave digger 
And the gravedigger says, there's, there's two things, right? He says, I've been doing this for 30 years, ever since... Uh, old King Hamlet defeated Fortinbras, which is also the day that young Hamlet was born. And then he pulls up Osric's skull and he says, this has been in the ground for... Yorick. Thank you. Sorry, Yorick's skull. Uh, this has been in the ground for 23 years. And that's when Hamlet says, oh, I knew him, Horatio. Mm. So he's okay. he's 30. And yeah. Okay. L- Olivier here is about 40. He's 41. Yeah. 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 So that's closer than I thought. Because, like, Brana is old. He looks old as shit in his version. I mean, he was probably also in his 40s. <laughs> he looks like, he looks closer than Olivier. I was going to say, he's Brana is probably... Actually, Brana might be still in his 30s, I believe, when he makes Hamlet. Well, t- to, to your point, though, TJ, I always thought that he was, like, supposed to be 19 or 20. Because I think in high school, as it was explained to me by our English teachers, I guess erroneously, that Hamlet was Shakespeare's young man's play, Macbeth was his middle-aged man play, and King Lear's his old man play. And it sounds like that isn't quite accurate because Hamlet's not exactly. Oh, I mean, I guess he's young by di- temperament and disposition, but like he's not like literally a teenager. He's. I feel like that's a bit dirty. schematic of a way to to look at those, but yeah. But I mean, when you explain it to a fifteen or sixteen year old, maybe that's the a re- sure. reductive way for them to wrap it's, their head around it. Which you know, it's easy it's, it's the it's the one that if you want to be like you know the way Telemachus is appropriate for like freshmen, Hamlet is is the play that like. Teenage boys are going to be able to see themselves most in the protagonist, but then there is that weird, like, oh, also he's 30 and Ophelia's, like, 15. 15 or 16, they refer to her as, like, kind of being an old maid, like, they're surprised she's not married yet, because she should have been married when she was, like, 12 or 13. The reason, I'm assuming the only reason it connects well, they think, with teenagers is Hamlet is a play in which the, the main character is dealing with his parents, uh, Macbeth, there's mm, no parents, yeah. and there's no children. King Lear, it's all about his kids. So if you split it up as far as the age range, Hamlet is supposed to be younger. But yes, the context of the play suggests Hamlet is about 30. Like, he should be married by now. Um, there's also, I mean, first of all, I guess there's a, there's a politically speaking, Denmark at this time is not, str- is not your traditional, um, monarchy in the sense that the council has decided that the crown is going to go to the dead king's brother and they're not calling the prince back he's not the automatic heir to the throne Um, this is very can i i'm sorry go ahead this is very complicated there's literally oh i don't have it up here there's literally a book like this big uh written about this and the idea again of succession at the core of the play that uh, do you hear that that's the sound of everybody turning this podcast off (laughs) That um, <laughs> beliefs around that time with the idea of the king having two bodies was that, you know, the, the earthly king dies, but the kingship continues to live on. And so the question of succession was kind of like religious or pastoral in the sense that you didn't need to be named. You actually there, there's a way to read this, that Hamlet, the moment his father dies, actually becomes that body of the king the pastoral or political body of the king and so what's what's odd about that is like claudius comes in and just says like hey it's me next and i'm gonna marry our sometime sister now our queen but within the context of denmark at the time and england at the time the play was written it's sort of like this office that passes one to the next just like if God forbid, you know, the president of the United States were to die, like immediately the vice president's just like in charge, you know? Well, well that's, yeah. and that is how monarchy, though, works. For example, yeah. even in England today, 
the the country's never without a monarch. The moment one dies, whoever is the whoever is the heir is automatically, even without being declared. Why did Why didn't he go to Hamlet instead of Claudius? Prince Hamlet, that is. It kind of did. Claudius just came in and was like, "Hey, it's me now. I'm going to marry the queen now that I marry the queen." And then that that uh monologue that he has right at the beginning he comes in and immediately like deals with the three biggest things threatening elsinore well they cut one here with fortinbras but yeah and then everybody's like well hamlet's too depressed well yeah Ham- so. they don't the, the council is all with claudius he's managed to win everybody all of the the nobles who run denmark he's won them over i don't know if this is the right time to talk about this but i thought um <laughs> I wrote down like one instance of cam work just so I'd have something to talk about on this episode because otherwise I don't feel like I'd have much to talk about. But there is this one instance of cam work that I thought was interesting. And it was the first time we meet Claudius and Gertrude. And it's really the first time we meet Hamlet as well. Um, so it, I think we're in like a shot over shot between Claudius and Laertes as Laertes asked to take his leave to go back to what, France, I think? And so, like, the focus is on Laertes and uh, Claudius. And then there's a shot from, like, kind of a long shot where, like, you're looking down the table. Again, Claudius is the focus. Laertes is back to us. Then the camera kind of drifts to the left, and we find Prince Hamlet sitting by himself. So, like, the, the camera moves from Claudius to Hamlet. And then Gertrude gets up from the head of the table, and, like, the camera kind of follows Gertrude as she leaves Claudius' side to go talk to Hamlet, to go tend to him. And then, like, a few moments later, we get tight in on Claudius, and he gets up from the table, and the camera moves with him as he moves over to talk to Hamlet. And so, like, I thought it was interesting that Hamlet has drawn both the king and queen from where they were sitting over to where he is sitting. He drew the camera over to himself as well, twice, actually. And through all that time, he remained seated, He's still, he's not even really looking at either Gertrude or Claudius as they come to tend to him. He's kind of just like staring into space. Um, so I thought that was interesting how much power he has, uh, both over the king and queen and also over the camera. He's also, and then as this, sir, he's also the only person you're describing his position. When we first see him. He's the only person in the room who's literally turned away from the king and queen. Yeah. And that, that is, they hang a lantern on that as that scene ends, because as the scene ends, we go super wide Gertrude and Claudius get up and head, like, away from the camera towards the back of the room, and everyone stands up and, like, you know, salutes or whatever, you know, the equivalent of saluting is, except for Hamlet, who is very uh, conspicuously still seated, still staring off into space. Everyone gets up in the wide shot and, like, head towards Claudius and Gertrude, and the camera very slowly focuses in on Hamlet from the ultra-wide into, like, a close-up, and then he begins, like, his first soliloquy of, of the movie. But, like... I don't know, I thought the camera work there and, and the power that Hamlet has over the camera, particularly in contrast to King Queen, was interesting. And, you know, I'm not sure what it suggests, what it's suggesting. I don't know if it's saying that, like, TJ, you got anything on what that, on that camera work? You know, I it, as you were describing it, like, I'm sure you described it accurately. I don't recall that happening. <laughs> I when, if, if you were going to ask me about camera work in, in the film... The one that kind of stuck out, stuck out to me that I thought a lot about was in Act 5 when they start realizing that the plan is unraveling. And we're, we're again looking kind of down lens, but then Gertrude like leans in in the foreground yeah. and is like... With her goblet. Yeah, and she's dying of the poison there. I thought that was an interesting use of kind of depth of staging, depth of field in the in the staging there. I But I don't recall what you described. I'm sorry. Well, is there anything else that you guys like saw in like the the filmmaking or the adaptation process that like added 
to the storytelling at all. Like I got, I got one more thing beyond that little bit of camera work that I can mention, but anything you guys got? Well, I think I just think generally speaking, the use of deep focus is incredibly, incredibly smart and useful. Just generally speaking for Shakespeare adaptations. I'm, I'm a little shocked that it's not kind of standard and it might, it might be generally for most film critics who attempt to do anything related to this, but there is theoretically so much that you can supply to a scene, even if it's not in the foreground. And so working it this way, uh, like that scene, like you're describing, there's quite a bit of attention to what's back behind Hamlet at the table. Um, what's going on amongst the nobles even once Gertrude has come up to him, and yes, then we follow Claudius up to him, there's still activity going on and the looks and the reactions of everybody else in the room. Kind of, this is where I think the film does kind of, the, his cutting of a significant portion of the, the play hurts the film because it's hard to separate the political aspect of the story from what he wants to make it, which is all about Hamlet and his, his psychological issues and the family drama. But the politics of it is always there. It's always present, even though he basically decides we're not going to focus. And, and like further to that point, I think aesthetically, we, we, we've already mentioned the kind of expressionistic influences that are in this. But I feel like they're only in it in like a sort of surface level aesthetic of like it's black and white, it's austere, there's smoke. Again, using as a point of comparison, Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, there's some like really fucked up imagery in there with water, with the multiplication of the witches, with Dutch angles, with the birds flying in, that even if you don't really understand what's happening within the text of the play, those vivid images are expressionistic and interpretive, which I, I think in that film is done really brilliantly because even though he he cuts some of the text there's a lot more of yeah, it. That's only an hour 45. Yeah, but but Macbeth is a pretty short play in, in general. But he does cut certain things. So he uses the language of cinema to supplement large chunks of soliloquy that are cut out. What Brana does, it, because I'm always interested when seeing Shakespeare adaptations on film, is how is film going to uh, basically it, interpret what on the stage you have to just say out loud. And in yeah. Brana's Hamlet, he just says it. He just walks around and says every yeah. single yep. word that's in that play. Unabridged. Unabridged. Four hours long. And, I, you know, you got to buy into it. But then I sort of appreciate it when it goes there. With with Olivier's, he turns it into voiceover in certain does, places. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. yep. and then in other places, he speaks it out loud and sometimes kind of back and forth, which I think is like a dialogue. Like, even in the, like an internal dialogue. Even in yeah. the same yeah. scene. Okay, yeah. let's talk about, like... What is the one aspect of this play everyone, even even complete ignoramuses when it comes to Shakespeare, know to be or not to be? That oh, line, I, was gonna, I, I thought you were going to talk about the dumb show with the actors. No, no, Sorry. no. This, no, I know. We get to that soliloquy. It starts off as a voiceover. And only, only a, what, about maybe 10 or 12 lines into the soliloquy does he actually start speaking it on screen. He started talking out loud. Um, it's a very weird. And, well, and what else is weird about that interpretation is when he does it is when he's doing the line Josh did off mic of to sleep perchance to dream. 
aye, there's the rub. Well, and the way he acts that is like as a literal sleep, like he's about to take a nap. And I'm like, buddy, that's not what you're talking about here. You're talking about death and the afterlife and, you know, the the unknown what dreams may come there. It's a It's a very strange interpretation of that speech, I thought. He also is overlooking waves crashing on rocks yes, it's, as he gives the speech. He's, yeah, mm. he's, it's a little, he's not, he's not on the battlements. He's literally wandered off to a cliffside and is but there is, lounging. There is, a, there is a, well, there is a line in the soliloquy where he, where he says, um, da, 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 or to take arms against a sea of troubles. Mm. And yes. as he says this, he literally, he pulls out a knife as he says, take arms against a sea of troubles as waves are crashing on the rocks beneath him. And then he holds the knife against his own heart and like says, hey, should I, you know, end it? And then doesn't. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit on the nose. I mean, the, the placement yeah, of mean, the actor and like, again, he's lounging. Doesn't, it's, doesn't Brana, doesn't Brana do this in a mirror? Yeah. Yes. That is the most on the nose version. But what's brilliant speech. what's brilliant about the way Brana does it is when he pulls the bear bodkin and threatens to kill himself, he's doing it as like almost a shot reverse shot with the mirror. The mirrors are one way, so you can see they're like interrogation mirrors. But once he gets past that decision, the camera pushes in and the like real flesh hamlet is out of frame. And the mirror itself like the the frame of the mirror itself falls out of frame, so you're actually seeing a reflection of Hamlet, but you don't any longer know that it's a reflection of Hamlet. There, there's, there, I think there's some interesting mise en scène in Brana's. Quite the uh, Brana head, TJ. I'm a big, I am a big fan of Brana's Hamlet. I it grew on me. It really are did. You, are you into the Hercule Poirot adaptations he's been? Oh, uh, let's I, I have not. Time with last I have years? not seen them. Let's but not. That's going to run the up. Let's not. Let's not touch on that <laughs> in this discussion. I I am a big fan though of his uh, Arliss Loveless from Wild Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Comes right after Hamlet, by the way. Oh. A one-two punch. Oh god, uh, that did come out to him. Oh, that was like a that was like two or three oh, years. Oh, yeah. but, but when was Much Ado? Was Much Ado like pre Hamlet? Two ninety-three. Yeah, it's it's yeah. earlier than Hamlet. Um, it's a it's a break between his history and his and his tragedy because he's got Henry and then he's got uh, he's got Hamlet later. Um, I don't I don't disagree with you. If we're gonna compare those two, I think Brana is the better director between these two. Honestly, watching this movie, I feel like Olivier is, first and foremost for Olivier, it's the performances and it's the actors, and he's kind of trying to adapt a staged production of Hamlet, just with without with with four walls. Essentially, he's not he doesn't have to worry about the audience um, being physically present. He can put the camera literally anywhere. Uh, but otherwise, it's a very stagey kind of atmosphere, and the performances he's kind of trying to draw stage performances out of the actors. Okay. So on, on that note, TJ, I'm going to ask another TJ's literature corner question. Okay. Um, having not read Hamlet since I was 16, um, I, I realized there is a play within a play very famously. So like there is like a performance aspect in the text. The text has like responding to a performance in it, but like they really hype that up in this adaptation. So I'm, I'm wondering, I'm asking how much of like, how much performance is an aspect of the text and how much of it is 
how much is Olivier adding to it? Because the way they stage certain scenes, like when Polonius talks to Hamlet about his madness and like Olivier puts himself like literally up on a stage reading a book as, as if he, and Hamlet in that scene is putting on a performance for Polonius to try to like fool him into thinking he's more mad than he actually is. Like, and there are other aspects like that where performance is like a real like subtext uh, what's happening here. Is that, is that in the, in Shakespeare or is that Olivier's edition you think? Yeah, that's in Shakespeare. Um, okay. You know, with, of course, the dumb show that you mentioned, but then this idea that, you, you know, Hamlet changes the lines of the play that they're doing within the play, The Murder of Gonzago. And before that, you see a dumb show, which is they basically do like a trailer of it with no words. Right. Which is a very strange, just Elizabethan theater thing that happened at the time. But from the moment that we mentioned earlier at the end of Act One of the play, when Hamlet sees his dad's ghost, that's when he tells Horatio and the night watchman around, Bernardo and Francisco, hey, I'm going to act crazy now just to see how people react. So a large part of it is actually a line from Macbeth, which is there's no art to see the mind's construction in the face. And what Hamlet's trying to do, act two through four, is can I make make Claudius show that he's guilty? But one of the things that uh, Olivia doesn't do that I think Brana does better, and actually who, who does it the best is Patrick Stewart in the David Tennant version, is when Claudius is praying, and Hamlet is like, I should kill him now. Oh, wait, he's praying. I don't want to kill him now, because then, how's this for some theology? Since he's praying, he'll go to heaven, and that's shitty revenge. I need to wait till he's in the incest sheets and murder him then, because then he'll go to hell, because that's how that works. But then right afterward, Claudius is like, oh, my words fly up. My thoughts remain below. Words without thought never to heaven go. Like, I, my prayer's not working. So actually, Hamlet could have killed him then. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a way of reading that, which Patrick Stewart does, that that too is a performance. The whole business of, of being contrite in that moment. And so when Patrick Stewart does it, it's more like a gotcha um, sorry, nerd it out. You can cut any of well, that that you want. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I asked the question. And there's like yeah. there's bits of staging that like emphasize the performance aspect of the text. And I'm thinking specifically of the scene right before Polonius and Hamlet talk where Hamlet is on a literal stage acting for Polonius. The scene right before that, Polonius basically pitching to Gertrude and Claudius, hey, I think Hamlet's mad and I'm going to show you that he's mad. And like the way they shoot this is Gertrude and Claudius are both like in front of the camera and we're over their shoulder. The camera is in between them. So you got one on the left side of the frame, one on the right side of the frame, and they are framing Polonius who's like giving this speech. So like Gertrude and Claudius are audience and we are audience too. And Polonius is performing for them. And she, she interrupts him more matter with less art. Yes. yes. (laughs) Uh, Brevity is the soul of wit. Brevity is the soul of wit is Polonius's very ironic line here. And then, uh, Mm -hmm. elsewhere, uh, hold on real quick. Um, uh, Polonius and Claudius listen behind the curtains as Hamlet talks to Ophelia. They are a hidden audience. And I can't remember if Hamlet's aware that they're there or not. Is he? It's it's typically read that he's not aware until the second part of the scene when he gets all gippy to a nunnery. Right. But that's yeah, yeah, okay. that's interpreted. It's been interpreted. Yeah, I was going to say, it depends on the version. But like audience, performance, like, you know. Well, and then when he, when then he hides I'm, in the heiress in yes, her bedroom in as well. Bedroom. Yeah. Yes, and yeah, Polonius hides in the air, and he gets uh, he gets a, a knife in the gut for his trouble. Um, and then, of course, obviously, uh, the place the thing where I'll catch the conscience of the king is you know 
performance, performance, performance. Like there's so much performance in this movie. And, and you know, I, I guess, as you just said, in TJ's literature corner, that is in the text. But I think that they do emphasize that in the staging in certain ways, which I thought was kind of interesting, I guess. I am kind of I'm, I'm, I'm kind of oh, I'm antsy to jump in and wanting to talk about the performances, because, as I said, Olivier is, I think, primarily distracted by performance. Um, and I think Josh has just described that very well in where he's placed the camera and how he's blocked the scenes. Uh, but to that end, what do we think of the performances in this film generally? There's a lot of, there are a lot of different versions of Hamlet out there. This is the one, again, we'll talk more about the Oscars a little later. It did win Best Picture. So people really liked this yeah. version. Um, you've got 18-year-old Gene Simmons. She's 18 at the time, I believe, playing Ophelia. Who? Gene Simmons. Gene, she, Gene Simmons. She later goes on to be the front woman for Kiss. Yes, that's I right. I was going to say, Gene Simmons it's, from Kiss. That's correct, yes. Uh, she's eight, She's like 18, so she's a couple decades younger than our Hamlet uh, in Olivier. Which apparently is from the text, according to Teacher's Literature Corner. That well, that's yeah, that's not all. Well, again, he's uh, the fact that yes, he's significantly older than Ophelia, not unusual. The fact that he's a decade older than Hamlet's supposed to be uh, means he's even he's that much older than her. Um, Gertrude, though, uh, in this film, she is, I believe, uh, Eileen Hurley is, I think, technically younger than Olivia here. Um, that's fine so this is another one of those rare yeah she's she is uh almost a decade younger than him so <laughs> she's playing and she's playing gertrude uh in the film um yeah. he's decided because the film was black and white he bleached his hair blonde uh right. so that it would stand out and then you would be able to easily in any given scene know who was hamlet i think that's helpful actually <laughs> like works seriously it is i i think it that helped out it's every it's it's helpful short of having a sign around him the whole time going this is hamlet <laughs> um which i would not have i'm over yeah, here I would not have put that past olivier <laughs> um claudia is it just so this is my my personal opinion i think some of these performances are a bit forgettable like uh i i yeah claudius i was gonna say basil sydney uh plays claudius here and he's definitely one of the more uh, unimpressive or, or underassuming Claudius's. He's not particularly. I thought he was pretty good. I thought he he's got good, a yes. few scenes uh, where the camera is close up on him, and he's able to play with his eyes. Yeah. He's able to. He's actually able to use his face. Um, but short of that, he's kind of forgettable. Um, I was. I was really unimpressed with Ophelia. I was pretty unimpressed with Gertrude. I thought Claudius was I. <laughs> I thought Laertes was boring as shit. Yeah, Laertes doesn't have I much. I thought Pol- Polonius was more of a fool in this than I remember him yeah. being in the Brana version. He's he seemed more dastardly and like cunning and conniving in the in the Brana version and in the text. Honestly, um, um, I I read it a different way. I think he's more bumbling in the Brana film. Um, okay, the, this one he I don't know. He seems to have more of like a distinguished air about him. Who who plays him in, in Brana? Uh, I believe the actor's name is I don't know. I don't remember who plays. So no, no one, one, no one big. Derek Jackson. Well, he was he was a famous Shakespeare actor, but no one film wise very big. Richard Briers. Richard Briers played Polonius. Ah, the famous Richard Briers. Mm-hmm. Famous um, for ice cream and <laughs> acting. Um, I I kind of liked Claudius. I think my favorite 
performances were Osric and the Gravedigger. Think okay, I was about I, to go I, there. Okay, hold on. And I liked Horatio a lot too in this. I think Horatio is mm. great. I think the Gravedigger is excellent. I, and our guy, you may fire in when yes. ready, Osric. So there are two. So I, uh, I'm a big fan of Stanley Holloway. He's mostly staged, but if you've ever seen the '64 My Fair Lady, also a Best Picture winner, Stanley Holloway plays Alfred P. Doolittle, Eliza's father. He's fantastic in that movie. He seen, steals every scene he's in. Um, I love the fact that he he does not hide his Cockney accent here. He's just going to play that grave digger as you're just hole in the ground, every man. I mean, it's also, it's important to note, this is one of those examples, cutting something. I'm not sure what the purpose of cutting from two grave diggers down to one is. It cuts some dialogue out, sure. But, okay, we're just going to go with one lone grave digger here. Um, Why do you need two? But there are two in the play, and there there is some back and forth discussion between them. We're going to consolidate it. Okay, it doesn't change a whole lot. Um, at least Holloway delivers a really memorable performance in that moment. It's enjoyable. He does, his, for sure. His back and yeah. forth with Hamlet is fantastic. He holds his own. Um, and then, yes, the courtier Osric, played by Peter Cushing. The st- the reanimated star of Rogue One. <laughs> yes, <that's... laughs> Cushing's story is, first of all, Cushing's story is fantastic. He ends up in this film uh, kind of out of luck. He auditioned to be in a British uh, adaptation on stage of Born Yesterday that Olivier was directing. And he was hoping Olivier was going to do it with British, basically adapted for a British story rather than American as the Born Yesterday is. Uh, Olivia didn't want to do that. He wanted Amer- He wanted actors with an American accent, and Cushing was like, mm. I can't do that. And Olivia was like, well, thanks for being honest. Bye. And <laughs> contacts him only like a year or two later and is like, hey, I'm going to do Hamlet. I think you'd be perfect for a role in this movie. And here he is. And he gives him Osric. Playing playing, <laughs> playing a rather, uh, as as the I swear to God, critic at the time, uh, described him as foppish and swishy. Foppish and swishy. I think that's pretty accurate. He was pretty foppish and swishy. I don't know if those first two adjectives, but they'd be in the top five. Uh, Ken, do you remember who played Osric in the Rana Hamlet? I can't remember off the top of my head. Oh, it's time for a duel, yes? Oh, oh yeah, it's Robin Williams. Yeah. <laughs> One Robin Williams, yes. That was only slightly better uh, than my Bill Cosby. Uh, I, I don't, again, I don't remember a ton of uh, Hamlet or Brana's Hamlet because I saw it almost 20 years ago now, but... Um, that role with Robin Williams as Osric in Brada's Hamlet kind of reminded me of Mike Myers in Inglorious Bastards, where he just kind of walks in, you're like, oh my god, it's Robin Williams, what are you doing here? This seems a little out of place, but okay, I'll roll with this. Um, same vibe. Mike Myers walking into his Glorious Bastards has the same vibe. And I think what both uh, Cushing and Williams do well is that the character of Osric in the way that he speaks, he's he also is pretending, he's also performing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, the question of how much of the plot does he know, the, the plot to kill Hamlet, but he got his position in the court because he is a wealthy landowner. And it's a lot more with uh, Robin Williams' performance where he's like literally bumbling, like he, he whether to have his hat on or not in, in yeah, the court. Funny. And then when he tries to bow, his sword gets caught and all of this business. But it's basically showing through the pretense of that character. Well, he's also, I mean, of all of the characters in this film, uh, Cushing has the most outlandish costume. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. he's gone over the top. 
his his gait as he walks is no you can't you can't ignore it he enters a room and he kind of has this unnatural kind of swing to his walk his gait as he enters the room to inform gertrude the first time we see him inform gertrude and claudius oh you know something happened hamlet is alive but uh he encountered pirates and he sent you both letters here you go and there's just something about his presence he steals every scene he's in in this movie just about i mean he's all he is in the fight sequence at the end of the film and that is that is a bit more distracting because it's the first time we get any significant uh sustained action in this movie um and there is to their credit there's some decent stunt work and fight sequence going on here between uh in this movie between hamlet and laertes in that scene uh but yet every time the camera you even spot cushing um as he is playing the arbiter or the the umpire so to speak, i guess for the fight um yeah he's just kind of every little mannerism every little action every little look he gives uh, he's trying to steal every scene from Olivier. So, can we talk about that duel at the end? Let's. Yeah. So, we have TJ's Literature Corner. A segment on this podcast we haven't had as much that I thought we would have more often than we've had so far is Josh's Populist Corner, where I tell you guys what, like, the pulse on the internet is about a certain movie. And so I, I went to Letterboxd for this. Um, I think this is, this is okay, I think it's a 3.6 on Letterboxd, which is decent i think brana's is a three five so this slightly outweighs brana's hamlet um Ooh. but a lot of the a lot of the reviews are like yeah this is okay this isn't great but like the duel at the end is cool that's kind of what the pulse is um i think the duel at the end is fine <laughs> um tj how much is like what i remember for the book is that the fortinbras kind of created like a ticking clock like he was on his way yep. And, like, shit was going to go down when he got here. And, like, the the stuff between Claudius and Laertes and Hamlet was kind of like, you know, you guys should be, like, preparing for Fortinbras. You shouldn't be fighting amongst yourselves. That was, like, what I remember from the from the play. So, like, the removal of Fortinbras kind of removes the ticking clock element and kind of, like, sets a different level of stakes to the final duel. Like, what do you think? The way I read the play is... They don't really know Fortinbras is coming because doesn't he misrepresent? Mm, okay. He's well. Claudius sends a letter to his uncle and is like, "Cease and desist, bud." And so when Hamlet crosses Fortinbras in Act Four, Fortinbras headed to uh, Poland, right? And they're like, "Hey, mind if we cut through Denmark real quick?" Uh, so no one really thinks he's coming. They think Claudius took care of it. And then, you know, no one expects the uh, Norwegian Inquisition going on there at the end. Um, that that what's going on outside of the castle and the larger political world is not really dealt with by the people inside. The people, the, the, the conflict and the drama that's going on inside Elsinore really overshadows what happens with, between Denmark and Norway. Uh, r- real quick, I want to... I wanna share some of the popular reviews on Letterboxd uh, for this movie. The most liked review on Letterboxd for <laughs> Olivier's Hamlet adaptation is a half star review. Ooh. And the review just said, and the review just says, y'all like this question mark. <laughs> that's, that's the most liked review. Okay. Uh, the second, the second and third most liked reviews are more uh, 
Sprite. Uh, they're both four star reviews. One of them is, you know, a couple of paragraphs and it says uh, a, a segment says not only is his his performance spectacular, but his choices as a director are quite avant garde, especially for the 40s. His sets are bare and angular, reminding me at times of German expressionism. That's that's fine. And then uh, another one that's another four star review, quite a bit longer, but uh, I'll just point out this quote, which says, while high school students reading this play would likely prefer to see the Mel Gibson version, this is the version I wish I would have seen first. I didn't even know there was a Mel Gibson version until I there read that. From Apparently, the early 1990? From the, yeah, the early 90s, yeah. yeah. Also blonde hair, I think. Mel Gibson in, like, a really bad blonde wig or a really bad dye job, one of the two. But the Mel Gibson with, Glenn, has to say. I, with Glenn I Close so. as I uh, Gertrude. Gertrude. I correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. I see that. That's a that's a good that's a good casting. Correct me yeah. if I'm wrong. The Mel Gibson one also, I believe, cuts out a lot of the ancillary, the political stuff. If I recall, I, Fort- I can't correct you if you're wrong because I just found out it existed like last night. I, so I, I haven't really seen know. it. I don't yeah. think Fortinbras is in that one either. Um, I think he he FB. takes a note from Olivier. Um, I don't mind the duel at the end of the film. I think it's. I think it's perfectly well staged, particularly for the forties. Um, I do think that there, there, this is kind of where his obligation to the studio who's distributing and the producer, well, he is the producer, but the financiers, if you will, like this is the forties. We need kind of a swashbuckling style moment. You're in costume. Mm-hmm. You're, you're in a castle. Come on. You, you got to play it up a little. Um, unfortunately, the text requires that the ultimate, I mean, the, <laughs> The death knell comes when he's not paying attention. It's just a slit of his own. I mean, it's just a small scratch, basically. Um, but because yeah. the sword is, of course, poisoned at the tip, uh, he's he's doomed. Um, the big thing about this scene is the leap at the end, which may be the most famous moment out of this movie. Um, at the when he his, he's brought Laertes down, he jumps down to kill Claudius. Correct. He goes. He runs up the steps and he jumps down from the landing on the second floor and he jumps right onto Claudius. That is actually Olivier jumping 14 feet down onto a stuntman because Basil Sidney did not want to be standing down there. And <laughs> they did not, he did not really practice it ahead of time. They're just, he's just like, I'm going to do this. And he knew ahead of time, he's like, I'm either going to end up dead, seriously injured, or I'm going to get lucky. And also the stuntman, hopefully I don't stab you in the eye with this pointy sword that I've got in my hand. And it, it, it fortunately for him and the stuntman, it worked out. And it's a great it's a great physical stunt in the film, but also kind of speaks to the careless, I guess, nature or or maybe we'll say um, adventurous side of actors and producers back in the forties. Uh, let's just try this and see. As I recall, in the Brana version, instead of jumping himself onto Claudius, he throws his sword. Is that right? Which which then impales Claudius to the throne, yep. cuts the chandelier. Rides the chandelier down, and it that then crashes into Claudius in the throne. Then he grabs the poison goblet, and like, it. Oh yeah, yeah. it's it's literally overkill. Um, <laughs> I remember uh, my English teacher Steve Missy. Shout out to Steve Missy. I remember him like commenting on the the flying sword and like he it's like his least favorite shot in the movie is like there's a st- it cuts to the sword yes. in the air flying through the air towards claudius as i recall so, it's a 90s uh, it's, i think i like olivia it's a 90s i like olivia's jump better yeah yeah it, uh real quick p- point of order real quick on uh josh's populist corner i want to just correct myself 
Uh, first of all, Ken, you're correct. The uh, Mel Gibson Hamlet, which was directed by Franco Zeffirelli, by the way. This is Zeffirelli's Hamlet, not Mel Gibson's Hamlet. Uh, that is only an hour, or two hours and ten minutes. That I assume that cut an awful yep. lot as well, like this one. But uh, I said that this Hamlet was higher rated on the letterbox than Bronos. That's actually not true. So that Olivia Hamlet has a 3.6 on letterbox. The Bronos Hamlet has a 3.7 on letterbox. And just for fun, the Zeffirelli Mel Gibson Hamlet has a 3.0. And the Ethan Hawke Hamlet from 2000, which I believe was a modern adaptation, uh, has a 2.8. So mm. not a great look for Ethan Hawke as the principal. I, I have not seen that one. I just know of it. Nor have I. Yes. I'm barely aware of it. Yes. Sorry. I just wanted to correct the record on the populist corner so, for this movie. If you'll allow me, I think this is a good opportunity to shift into the, the Oscar element of this. This, again, Best Picture winner. It actually had seven nominations here, and it won four. In addition to Best Picture, Olivier wins Actor, and uh, it wins Art Direction and Costume Design, both for, at the times, they were those two categories were actually four different categories, because it was Art Design for Black and White. Black and White and Color, yeah. And Costume Design yeah. for Black and White. Um, it won both of those. Also nominated Olivier for director. Gene Simmons was nominated as, for supporting actress as Ophelia from Kiss. Yes, <laughs> in his early in his earliest role uh, of any kind, and it was nominated for score uh, among dramas or comedies because again the score category was also divided between dramas and comedies and musicals. Uh, so right. here you have score nominated. It, it won four of those: best picture, actor, art direction, and costume design. Uh, this is, I think we, all three of us are coming to the, we, we seem to have the same idea or the same position on this. We all prefer Brana's version. Brana's version, of course, not nominated for Best Picture. Interestingly, I didn't know that. this version, not nominated for a screenplay nomination, not sure that it would have deserved one. It is, however, I think we can all agree, heavily adapted. Brana's version, on the other hand, prides itself on not really being adapted. Unabridged. Yes. Yeah. It is nominated for adapted screenplay at the Oscars that year. <laughs> I have two comments all about this. Uh, one, Roger Ebert actually had a m- moment of brief intelligence where he argued that... <laughs> oh, shut uh, up, TJ. That in favor of that nomination being that, you know, it wasn't really just a copy-paste job that, like, you also had to consider parts of the writing being, the intercutting being... You know, writing in the the shots, writing in perspective, things like that. I don't know if that's enough necessarily to get an Oscar nomination, but this does bring me to the question I have about, or perhaps critique of this film winning so many Academy Awards. How much of that do you think is an appreciation of the film and how much of it is, oh, this is Hamlet. Hamlet is a classic text. I really want this to be good. And thus I think, because in a sense, um, yeah, the story is going to be really good. You already got that, like, you already got that down, right? But are you able to actually kind of divorce your appreciation for one of the greatest works of the Western canon from the film that comes out of it? So here's where, to Josh's point earlier, he brought up the fact that Olivier had received an honorary Oscar for making Henry V. Henry V was... This is before we turn the mics on. This is before we turn uh, the mics on, so I want to, like, bring this sure. up. Like, the year before, he won two Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actor. He won an honorary Oscar at the age of, like, 39 for his work on Henry V, 
which came out in 1947, which, why did they give him an honorary Oscar, Ken? So part of, just kind of for uh, having adapted it so respectfully, I guess. Yeah, um, he will fit, good job. He, he, you made a good movie. Like, Here's an Oscar he, that isn't fitting in any category. Like with Hamlet, he did, uh, he, he produced, he wrote, he directed, and he starred in Henry V. It was very well received to the point it also was nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win. In fact, Hamlet, this film, it's the fourth screen adaptation of a Shakespeare play to be nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it follows after. We've got a few here. There's a There was a Midsummer Night's Dream from 1935. That has Mickey Rooney as Puck, by the way, if you want to seek that oh, out. Wow. James Cagney is also in it, as is Olivia de Havilland. It plays Hermia. Uh, so 1935 is Midsummer Night Dream. The following year, George Cukor directed Romeo and Juliet from 1936. And then you get Olivier's Henry V. None of those win Best Picture, but they're all nominated. It, it is of note that in Midsummer Night's Dream and Romeo and Juliet, there are 10 nominees in each of those two years. Uh, but Hamlet is the first to actually win. So they've dealt with Shakespeare for, before. They've seen Shakespeare and it is a little weird. They've, they've already honored Olivier by giving him an honorary Oscar for Henry V. Now suddenly they are heaping awards, four wins out of seven nominations for this movie. I don't know. I think it's. I don't know that's entirely because, oh, we, we can't divorce the fact that this is a great work from, uh, from our objectivity about film. If for no other reason, this is also the first non-American produced movie to win Best Picture. Well, I mean, to the question, though, the fact that he won an honorary Oscar, which are usually reserved for, like, late in careers, people who, like, probably should have won an Oscar at some point, but, like, they just never did. For example, Sam Jackson, who's now in his 70s, just got an honorary Oscar in the last couple of years. Uh, it's usually reserved for something like that. So the fact they gave him one for Henry V when he's 39, they're clearly itching to give this him an is, Oscar. Again, we're in the first 20 years. The Academy did a lot of weird things like this. Like, the, Walt Disney has 50-something, <laughs> has, has an, I've seen a number of Academy Awards, and many of them mm -hmm. are honorary Oscars because they just were like, wow, we're impressed with what you're doing. Here you yeah, go. Yeah, they they gave him one for Snow White just because, like, they didn't even know they what to did, do with that. They did, you know, <laughs> it's the first animated feature. They didn't even have the rules. Like, a couple of years before this, 1944, uh, Barry Fitzgerald is nominated twice for the same role, both as best actor and best supporting actor. The Academy is still working out the kinks on their rules at this point. They're just handing out awards pretty much to whoever they like. But that's kind of what I'm saying, though, is like the fact that they're like, clearly they want to give a they want to reward Olivier and are impressed by his Shakespearean prowess and bring it to the, to the big screen. So, like, I think it's possible that they, you know, they're like, OK, we couldn't give you the Oscar or we gave you an honorary Oscar for Henry V. But now that you're. Now that you're bringing us Hamlet, let's let's really you know. Well, and, and let's give this the big prize. Now there's a concept of what an Oscar movie is, such that hearing something a year ahead is coming out, people can be like, "Oh, this is probably going to be nominated for Oscars," without even having seen it. I, I feel like this was, especially in 1948, like, "Oh, they made a a, a Shakespeare movie." Well, we like Shakespeare, therefore. Or we want to seem this, like we this must be good. We, yeah, we want to make people believe we really love Shakespeare and we're smart and and we're intellect. We're a bunch of intellectuals who appreciate yeah. the smart things. Um, mm -hmm. This is this is. There's been so I'm breaking this down. There have been six direct adaptations from what I could tell that were nominated for Best Picture. Um, that is, they are. We're talking a Midsummer Night's Dream. Two Romeo and Juliets, uh, including Franco Zeffirelli's in 1968, and then Cucor, which I mentioned. John Houseman, 
Most people would know from uh, the Paper Chase in the mid-70s. He was also one of Orson Welles' uh, Band of Mercury players. He directed Julius Caesar in 1953. That's with Marlon Brando and uh, James Mason and uh, a bunch of others. Um, but then you get two West Side Stories now we've seen get nominated. They're obviously adapt. Those aren't. They're not direct. Ad- those aren't direct adaptations. No, but they are. It's Romeo and Juliet. But so they do. They're. Sh- I'm aware of that, but it's not Capulets and Montague. But they're Shakespeare. It's a Shakespeare. It's adaptation. not a direct adaptation. I'll give, give it. I get that's that. What I'm saying. But like, can we make a distinction? Can we make a distinction between The Lion King and Hamlet? That's what I'm saying. Between West Side Story There's, and Romeo and Juliet. That's what I'm saying. There's a, there are six direct adaptations. You could then count West Side Story, at which point there have been two additional nominees. West Side Story, of course, one. And then there's the question of what do you con? What, how do you describe Shakespeare in Love? We'll get to that later in a different year. But it, for the garbage, current, as, as far as adaptation, it's taking elements from different plays. But we can, can we agree that that's not a, an adaptation of a Shakespeare play? No, it's making no. references throughout, but and it's making allusions. There are certain scenes and sequences and characters that are seemingly adapted from Shakespeare plays, but it's kind of it's a, a cheeky pastiche. Yeah. So I won't count that, even though technically that's the third film associated with Shakespeare to win Best Picture. Well, I even I even want to make a distinction between West Side Story and this, and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Like I'm talking like how many? I think this is only like direct Shakespeare adaptation. That's one Best Picture, isn't it? This is the yes, correct. This is the only okay. direct adaptation of Shakespeare play that wins Best Picture. That is correct. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like I I I understand that West Side Story is a version of Romeo and Juliet, but also like, you know, you couldn't watch West Side Story then pass an English test on Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> you could conceivably watch this and then pass a test on Hamlet. You know what I mean? Not my tests. <laughs> it's just insane. You're missing out on a huge sec- Yes, kids, if you're listening. Every question is about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. <laughs> so, so watch the Olivier Hamlet and then read the Tom Stoppard play and you should be golden. Just go watch the Gary Oldman movie, okay? Just... This and that. I haven't seen the Gary Oldman um, movie, actually. Yeah, it's not. That's also not going to help you, by the way. Just throwing that out there. Oh, okay, it's not going to help you yeah. with a, a test on Hamlet. Um, I did. Re- I did read the Tom. St- I've never seen the Tom Stopper play nor the movie, but I did read it when I was like eighteen. So I was only like a year removed from reading Hamlet, and I thought it was so funny. I bet if I read that now or watched it now, I, I would have no idea what was going on because it's been so long since I've been exposed to uh, those characters within their original text of Hamlet. But you know. To date, I will also just throw out, the, Olivier is the first, he's now one of only two, uh, to direct himself to an Oscar win. The other being, either of you Roberto know, Banini. That's correct. 1998, mm. A Life is Beautiful, uh, opposite Shakespeare in Love, by the way, uh, out of just pure irony, if you will. Um, I always thought I always thought Clint won for Unforgiven, but he didn't. He did not. Nope. So I'm mistaken. Nope, yep. No. Roberto Benigni is the the was the first and has the only since today uh, since Olivier to direct himself to an Oscar win. Um, as we mentioned earlier, this is also this was the first of only three films to win at Venice and then to go on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. Um, and it took a long time to see the others. Yeah, it's it's interesting how much of a gap there yeah. was between this and the next yeah. one. Yeah, what, what were they? What were the next? You ones? get Shakespeare. You get uh, The Shape of Water in 2017. And then Nomadland mm-hmm. a couple years later in tw- from 2020. Huge gap. It's a real shame Joker didn't win Best Picture because that could have been a fourth movie to win the Golden Lion and then Best Picture. Darn. Boy, we are going to have some things to say when we get to that year, aren't we? <laughs> the 2019 um, series, yeah. So we've been going over these and all the other series. We always ask this question. What do we think? Do we think 
Olivier's Hamlet gets nominated today? Is it is it in the conversation? Do people embrace this like they did to the tune of adjusted an adjusted forty million dollar box office? Well, I think this is an easy one because we just had the tragedy of Macbeth last year from Joel Cohen, and like that's a, I think it's a really really com- easy comparison because. both visually they're extremely similar and also like abridging the text similar situation there um renowned actors of the time similar situation there and um what happened with tragic Macbeth? it got a a, it got a best actor nomination i think it got a best cinematography and a best production design nomination and i think that might have been it i think that was um i I think it, it may have been like so we had i think we had nine or eight or do we have 10 nominees last year we did have 10 I think Macbeth may have been like running in number twelve. Like it, it was outside looking in, in but I don't think it was like particularly close to getting a best picture nomination. And again, that's with ten nominees, let alone five. So I think the easy thing to say is that we had a version of this last year and it did not get nominated for best picture. So no, I don't think this would get nominated for best picture either. And Joel Cohen's Macbeth is a hell of a lot better. Yes. It's pretty cool, yeah, man. Good... It's really cool. That's, <laughs> like... Is that the lesson we're taking from this discussion? I think run, run out. Not run out, really. Just go on Apple and watch the Cohen edit, the the the, the Ethan Cohen adaptation, or excuse me, the Joel Cohen adaptation. Joel, Joel Cohen adaptation Cohen. of tragedy. Ethan's busy making Correct. a lesbian road trip That's movie right, right now. And That's what Ethan's. Doing. It is right. Ethan wanted to take a break, and it turns out that break did not last very long. He's already getting back into production. What's funny? What's funny is that like I've seen. Um, the trades report on like Ethan casting and like production. They're in pre-production right now for this movie and no one's naming the title because I believe the working title has a, a, uh, a word in it. It starts with D that's used to refer to lesbians that I'm not allowed to say, but like no one's, <laughs> I believe that's the title of the movie, at least for now, but like no one's reporting that. Cause, uh, it's a rough one, I guess. I don't know. So Ken, do you think this would be nominated for best picture today? I do not think that this film gets nominated for Best Picture today. I don't think it gets even... I don't... This film does not get much of an audience, I don't think. No. I I don't... We've seen adaptations of Shakespeare more recently. I'm thinking Julie Taymor has done a couple, I think, more than... I mean, at this point, we're talking about a decade ago when she did The Tempest, right, with starring Helen Mirren. Um, And that kind of just went nowhere. I don't, it, it didn't get great reviews. Nobody went to see it. It didn't get awards discussions. I didn't see it. Um, you had, win, you had a production of Winter's Tale, I think, get filmed with Judy Dench and Colin Farrell. Um, also almost a decade, 2014 or 2015 or something like that. Well, and Bra- Brana's own As You Like It went straight to HBO. Right. Yep. Uh, there was a Coriolanus directed by Ray Fiennes that was excellent, but it, Kind of did the festival circuit, and that was about it. How about Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing? Did not see it, um, and I don't. I vaguely yeah, remember. I, I, I don't even really. remember God, he's it. just so clever. You know that snappy dialogue. That is my favorite. I'm, full disclosure: that's my favorite Shakespeare comedy. I'm I'm hesitant to want to watch his version. I just don't know how. I wouldn't. It might upset me. I wouldn't. Um, you won't really I get wouldn't. it unless you've seen Firefly. <laughs> okay. Just watch the Brana Much Ado with uh, Keanu Reeves and Denzel Washington both at their hottest. Yeah, okay, the, the, the Brana version is fantastic. Um, Emma yeah. Thompson and Brana just are just perfect together. Um, Michael Keaton just being a drunk. Yes, a drunkard. exactly. Um, the Joss Whedon, though, I'm pretty sure has a post credit scene that uh, basically previews his King Lear, if I'm not mistaken. 
Um, there's a bit of a, it's just an insert in the end of that. So if you are into the Shakespeare universe, cinematic universe, go watch the Joss Wheaton one, I suppose. Um, it makes sense because Mark Ruffalo said that the Hulk is Hamlet. So see, I believe he was being cheeky when he said that. I, maybe not. Maybe, or maybe Wheaton's well, just I running think, with it. I think what, in the context, I think he just meant like a lot of people played the Hulk now, as in a lot of people played Hamlet too. So I guess they're both characters. So <laughs> this did this deserve its best picture nomination? I, I don't think so. That is that is an interesting question. Um, we'll I think we'll discuss. We're gonna have to get into more of these movies. Uh, there's still four to come from 1948. I yeah, personally I don't have much context, honestly. Yeah. I personally, it's hard for me to say. My gut my gut tells me I would not have. I can off the top of my yeah. head, I can. I can think of a few more movies that I'd I'd have liked here. Uh, one in, actually, yeah, I can think of a couple movies I'd have put here before Hamlet. So I don't know. We'll see when we get to the recap episode. I don't know if Hamlet is still here for me, uh, even among the 1948 yeah. films. We will we will speaking yeah. of ni- other 1940 fil- 1948 films. We will be back with the next episode. Uh, I believe Johnny Belinda is next. Uh, we'll be back. JB, it's uh that H-I-J-B. is, and if that is a if that is a title that listeners are not familiar with, welcome. I've never welcome heard of it. To the, welcome to the club is one that is forgotten uh, to history. I I think I had heard of it, but yeah. I couldn't tell you a damn thing about it <laughs> until we picked this year. So I'm excited actually to watch it because it was not at all on my radar. It yeah, this is definitely off off radar uh, for I think a lot of people to the to the extent uh, I think I've only ever. I'm only aware of it ever being like, I'm probably wrong about this. I think I've seen it being screened on like TCM once. Mm. Uh, it's one of those they drag out out of obligation, I think, once in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Before we break, can I ask one thing about Hamlet? Yeah. So after, uh, after they see the ghost, Horatio says to Hamlet, Hamlet wants to go follow the ghost because it, it runs away and Hamlet wants to go follow it. And Horatio kind of is hesitant and says, quote, what if it tempt you toward the flood, my lord, or to the dreadful summit of the cliff that beetle over his base into the sea and there assume some other horrible form which might deprive you your sovereignty of reason and draw you into madness. So Horatio is like, hey, don't follow the ghost because what if it turns you into a madman? Theory, what if Hamlet goes to follow the ghost? It actually does turn him into a madman. And then the next two hours, the rest of the play is just Hamlet's madness taking over him. And Claudius didn't actually kill Hamlet's dad. And Gertrude isn't actually a hoe. And Ophelia doesn't go crazy. Hamlet's just like sitting in a room by himself, imagining all these things, rocking back and forth from the moment he sees the ghost onward. Discuss. TJ, go. That depends on one thing. Is the top still spinning, or does it fall over? (laughs) Uh, That should be that should be like that should be a take. I'm gonna make that a take. Your 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 takeaway from this episode is that hey, if you want to sound smarter, smarter to party, Hamlet, the last three quarters of Hamlet all takes place in his head after he sees the ghost. That's your take. I've read papers that suggest that Gertrude actually murdered. King Hamlet. Um, that hussy? I bet she did, because she wanted the uh, she wanted that Claudius D. In case <laughs> this is dropped or this portion is re- is actually published, just want to put this there. Gertrude's not a hoe just because she remarried. <laughs> so for all listeners out there, if you're feeling judged, 
We're not okay, judging you for marrying, that. Marrying your late husband's brother two months after your husband dies, that's that's some question. That's questionable. It doesn't make you a hoe. It it makes you, that's a it makes you flag. questionable, though, yes. You could see that as taking one for the uh, country. I did not mean that to have a sexual undertone. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you could read it, though, as like, you know what would really help stabilize the country? Everyone's sussy I mean, about this Claudius guy, and see, I'm just going to marry him. And I'd love to see an know. adaptation that shows Gertrude as being more Lady Macbeth-like. I mean, she could just be doing it to retain power, right? I, I've also read a paper that she drowns Ophelia. Ooh, hey, hey! She is a whiny little uh, bitch, I mean, isn't she? Scar doesn't marry Sarabi in The Lion King, mm-hmm. so I don't know why, like, Gertrude feels the need to, you know, get in bed with the, the murderous brother. Whatever. I just want to ask about my theory about uh, Hamlet going crazy and the rest of the play being in his head. That's that's a very 2021 or 2022 uh, read of Hamlet, I think. Oh, I, one thing. There's a very, very weird camera POV with, in the bedroom scene, like from the perspective of the ghost. Yeah, as it's going, backward, um, going backwards up the steps. Yeah, which is bizarre because there's ambiguity in that scene as to whether the ghost is actually there, given that only Hamlet sees it and Gertrude doesn't. So putting the camera POV for where the ghost is, the ambiguity of that interpretation of his madness is completely drained from that scene, but... I think I'm on record not caring for this film, so I actually I don't care for much I either. Liked, I tried to engage, and it, it it was tough for me. I actually liked that scene for the exact reason that Josh was suggesting earlier. There's you know raising the question of whether he's actually like because there's a there's a point at which Hamlet, of course, is famously there's a point at which he's pretending to be crazy, and a point at which his his seeking out vengeance makes him crazy. Like he at some point passes from pretending to being mad, and. That's not the worst scene to try to depict that, because yes, Horatio and the others in the beginning saw the ghost, and now suddenly uh, she can't see the ghost. So unless, this would be like a deep dive, you have to show the, the you have to explain away how the ghost can only, he reveals himself to a select people, and only those who believe can see him. Well, there there are several essays about, like, the Catholic versus Protestant belief of ghosts. And what the metaphysics of the ghost actually are, because he talks about being doomed to walk the earth, but then also he's like, hey, wait a second, the sun's about to rise. I need to go back down to hell, question mark. And then if he's from hell, then can you actually trust him? There's like a whole lot of other stuff like that. He's in but, purgatory. This is this is uh this is Jacob Marley but, coming back to But but they're they're Protestants, so they don't believe in purgatory. I know I'm adapting it in my head. He's Jacob yeah. Marley. Shook. I mean, it's 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 interesting. Hamlet, but... don't make the same mistakes I did. Be nice to people. Merry Christmas. We're Marley and Marley. Our hearts were painted black. <laughs> Excellent. I think that should be the end. I think that should to, just be the end. Come back the to Mar- Michael Caine, just like that. Just whoa. What are these guys? Great. What are all these guys doing in my bedroom? More of gravy than of grave. Where do you get these puns? <laughs> you weren't supposed to blow the bloody doors off. <laughs> the Lamborghini den. Much more subtle. All right. All right, Ken, land the ship. You're hosting. <laughs> End the episode for us, buddy. Oh, Sean Connery should have played Claudius. Uh, Movies. Your mother's a whore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in Shakespeare movies. The movies that made us.
This brings an end. Come on, Ken. You can do it, buddy. <laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. I think this pretty much wraps it up. For the episode. <laughs> Whatever you... So now the question is, do, do I cut the Marley singer? <laughs> what do I cut? What do I leave in? Uh, you got time to figure that out. Depends on how our audience goes. <laughs> I feel like you leave in the Marley, the Marley bit, the Marley singing movies. I feel like uh, <laughs> let's leave Connery to sure film people. beat women in peace. They love movies. It's... Okay, we're gonna. All right, bye everybody. <laughs> the rest is silence. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll uh, see you at the next episode. <laughs>